Welcome to Premier Pain Talk, a podcast dedicated to expanding awareness about treatment options for people in pain. Each week, host Dr. Michael Danko from the Premier Pain Treatment Institute in Cincinnati, Ohio, will discuss cutting-edge treatments for pain management that are improving the quality of life for those suffering from chronic pain. Tune in now to learn more about how to relieve pain and restore your life. Welcome to another episode of Premier Pain Talk. Uh, I'm your host, Dr. Michael Danko. Uh, with me today is uh, Dr. Michael Fishman. Uh, he's a really good friend of mine and a fantastic pain physician of the greater Philadelphia area. We're going to go on, on, a, on a first name basis here, uh, Michael. We're going we're gonna, to, that way we don't have to call each other doctor and doctor back and forth for half hour, 45 minutes. But we're going to have a great episode today. We're going to talk a, a couple different things. Uh, one topic is going to be spinal cord stimulation and some of the uh, new horizons on spinal cord stimulation, and then we're gonna we're gonna dovetail off into some discussions on digital health and and data capturing and and potentially some new options for pain therapy down the road. Uh, so welcome, uh, Michael. Thank you, Michael. Michael, <laughs> Are you sure you like Michael? Michael, better than Doctor Doctor. I've, I think I've seen this movie before. We can go Dank and Fish. However, you want to do it. Dank and Fish. Okay, I guess that makes more sense. This is not exactly like Spies Like Us. Although if this was Spies Like Us, uh, Michael, would you be Chevy Chase or would you be Dan Aykroyd? I feel like I'm a little more of a of a, a Dan Aykroyd kind of guy. I think you're a little more Chevy Chase. Is that true? Okay, well, you know, at the end of this podcast, we're going to have a poll from the audience and find out if they think that Danko is Aykroyd or I am Aykroyd or Danko is Chase and I am Chase. All right. So let's get started. Awesome. All right. Well, we're going to throw a little softball at you. Just tell me a bit about uh, where you're from, where, like, as far as where you went to training, and then a little bit of how you got to where you're in practice now. Sure. So I, uh, I'm here as a, really the endpoint of a, a series of disconnected but fortunate events that brought me to my current practice situation. So I, I went to medical school at Jefferson Medical College, and I developed an interest in anesthesia and ENT, uh, had an ex-surgery. And, and at the end of the day, I ended up as a surgery resident at a, at a program outside Philadelphia. And I had a great experience um, learning about surgery and operating, taking care of surgical patients. But uh, there was something, for whatever reason, on the other side of the curtain, on the anesthesia side of the world, that was still quite intriguing to me. So I ended up spending a lot of time uh, working with the anesthesiologist at, at that hospital and ultimately found that perhaps it was a better use of my interests to look after patients during surgery and around their surgeries, including taking care of their pain, than to be the surgeon himself. It's ironic that those same skills later on as I started to do pain surgeries and implants became really helpful skills to have. But I didn't really realize that until I went and did a residency in anesthesiology at Yale New Haven Hospital. The one thing about Yale that, that everybody should know is it is smack dab in the middle of Connecticut at the junction of I-95 and I-91, which means that it is a place that is a super busy hospital and gets really most of the, the trauma in the state. Really an amazing place to train, learned a lot there and had great, uh, great folks to, to work with. And I went from Yale where I learned a bit about chronic pain out to Stanford and spent a year doing a fellowship and learning about, at the end of the day, how complex 
the impact of pain is on our patients and how to sort of unravel and be a little bit of a detective to understand some of the origins and competing variables that we see in our patients that sometimes um, leads to them getting better and other times are obstacles. So since then, I graduated and I've been in practice here in the Center for Interventional Pain and Spine in Pennsylvania and Delaware since 2015. And I've had the great fortune to combine clinical research and innovation with my clinical practice. So my clinic is it's like a lab, but we see patients and we get the opportunity to think of new ways to help people, new ways to get patients the right treatment at the right time. It does not feel like work. Uh, I'm very fortunate to have a great team that that works with me to execute on these projects. That's fantastic. Uh, You know, I I think you're well on the way to saying you've never worked a day in your life. And and it's all fun and and playing around having having a good time and advancing medicine. That's fantastic. Uh, You know, one of the the therapies that that gets me super excited and, you know, makes it not feel like work sometimes is, is something called a spinal cord stimulator. Uh, it's an implantable device that's been around you know, for many, many years uh, from when Medtronic developed it way back in the day. Uh, and it's uh, gone through a lot of advances over time. And, and a lot of people have heard about spinal cord simulators or they've known a family member that's had one. Uh, and then, you know, over time, we're, we had this therapy called tonic stimulation, which was a very basic form of stimulation. And, and for you know some percentage of patients, it, it worked pretty well. And for others, it didn't. Uh, and so sometimes... You know, patients hear the word spinal cord stimulator or, or neurostimulator, uh, and they sometimes tune it out because they think about it being a therapy they've already heard about or that didn't work for somebody else that they know. Uh, but what's been really exciting for us is that there's been a lot of advances in, in spinal cord stimulation. And, and uh, you know, much like, you know, you wouldn't poo-poo a, a cell phone if you, if, all you, if you basically, you know, we have flip phones and we had blackberries and we had, you know, androids and iPhones. And, you know, just because your grandfather had a, and had a rotary phone and then developed a flip phone and was not really savvy with it, you know, it doesn't mean that you might not want an iPhone. Uh, you may not enjoy that. And in a spinal cord stimulation, my mind has gone through, you know, maybe even more uh, advancements than, uh, than cell phone technology or other, other technology of any type. So, uh, you know, Today, I want to take a little bit of time to talk about uh, some of the sensing technologies that, 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 are, that are happening in spinal cord stimulation, some of the ways we're, we're uh, helping these spinal cord stimulator systems be smarter and deliver better therapies for us. So just give, just give a b- brief primer on, um, from some of the research you've done and some of the, the work you've done on, on what sensing technology uh, is in spinal cord stimulation. Sure. And so, you know, Mike, you asked a really good, uh, you made a good point before is that spinal cord stimulation has been around for a long time. And one of the the things that I think we need to realize is there's lots of different ways to bring therapies to people. Sometimes it's really obvious, right? For example, somebody's bleeding and you hold pressure on the wound and cover it with a bandage. Sometimes it takes a lot of really fancy technology and tools to do different drug discovery efforts to identify a drug like lisinopril that can lower people's blood pressure. Sometimes people get lucky and just find a drug that works. Like with Coumadin, you know, a drug that most of us know about and know it as warfarin. Warfarin is 
actually named for the Wisconsin Agricultural Research Foundation. The wharf was called in to find out why these cows were bleeding out. They were really dying just by bleeding out gastrointestinally. And what ended up happening is they found that these cows were eating pink clover. And cows in these fields were eating pink clover, and something in the pink clover was impairing their ability to clot blood. It was thinning their blood. And so, of course, this enterprising person at Wharf said, hey, let's make rat poison out of it. Now, it's a whole other story to figure out how we turned that into humans, but let's just say that they changed the name to Now, when you think about that, that's serendipitous drug discovery. That's getting lucky, making an observation and learning that a natural compound or a naturally occurring phenomenon is therapeutic or can be used therapeutically. Now, has anybody ever tested a nine volt battery? You know, the old fashioned way by putting it on your tongue. Not particularly pleasant, but that's stimulation. That's passing electricity across two contacts using an electrode happens to be your tongue. You're creating a bipolar. Well, when we use electricity to treat the spinal cord, that's kind of how it started out. I mean, it wasn't quite as, let's just say, barbaric as taking a 9-volt battery and touching it to your tongue. But what the hypothesis was is that electricity, which in the 1950s and 60s had started to be used in pacemaker technology, so being used in humans, electricity could be used to connect to the nervous system and talk to it. And there was a theory called the gate control theory that there's a gate. And that that gate is this wide. And all of the impulses that pass to your brain have to go through this gate. And if you drown out those impulses by filling that gate with a buzz, you'll compete with the pain signals and the pain signals won't get through. And so what you described, tonic stimulation, is something that people are familiar with. It's a, it's a buzzing electrical sensation. It may be tapping, it might be pulsing. It's uh, something that can be comfortable, could also be annoying, but it's something that people are familiar with. If you've ever used a transcutaneous electrical nerve stimulator, like a TENS unit, you felt those buzzes. This is a little bit different because we're giving it centrally towards the spine, but that was the general principle. How could we find the sweet spot to deliver just the right amount of electricity to turn on a buzzing and tingling and then have it overlap with the area of pain. And that's the way spinal cord stimulation was practiced. And that was the goal to create a buzzing over the painful area for about the first 40 to 45 years. And during that time, what happened was the devices got way, way, way better. They went from the first generation, multiple generations of devices, and people invented all sorts of different ways to hook them together and to power them. And fast forward, the last seven years, eight years, we've seen a dramatic improvement in the outcomes we've seen. And that's because really the last eight to 10 years has been focused not on making the batteries smaller and the wires uh, easier to use and easier to MRI, but the last eight years have been used to try and understand and really fine-tune the electrical signals that are being passed to the spinal cord. Because we were lucky originally that it worked in some people. 
But the challenge with something like that you have to implant surgically working in only some people is it's hard to know who's going to work for, and it's kind of a big deal to implant it. I mean, I think I think we know, and you know, Mike, I'm going to call you out. You're a bit older than I am, but we, we know that the the way we've seen these devices perform, and I mean, just from the fact of not even like the therapy, but the device themselves, the batteries perform, etc., has dramatically changed over the last ten years. Uh, but but the therapies is what really is going to make this a game changer for patients because just because your battery lasts longer, it doesn't help your pain. Who cares? It's just a cooler paperweight, you know? So, I mean, I know you've seen a variety of patients in a variety of different systems. What, what do you, what do you see as the, the next frontier? Cause we haven't talked about sensing yet. I know you mentioned that, but we're still like on the path to why sensing, why do we need it? Yeah. So I mean, that's a, uh, it's really interesting because if you if you talk to you know a bunch of different pain doctors and you, and you talk to a bunch of different people in the industry, you're going to get a bunch of different answers. And you know the, like what you're talking about, a lot of the advances recently are, were some things uh, with changes in in the way the electricity is being delivered. We call that waveforms and different types of waveforms and, and technologies. And uh, you know I think the the most exciting therapies are the ones that are that are going to be durable and be sustainable so you know i uh, um i think that some of the like dtm therapy is a really fantastic uh, you know science behind how that how to fine-tune that therapy and hopefully be able to change the you know the the gene expression in a way that you're going to have a hopefully more durable therapy you know some of the some of the research that's you know, at, at been published so far at 12 months has been really exciting uh, i think some of the things that that uh, has been done with the, the burst waveform, with with trying to you know mimic some of the the brain waves and in, in, in delivering impulses in a way that that's more recognized by your brain is is really fascinating. I think some of the some of the things that that's happening with surround inhibition and in other in other ways that uh, you know some of the you know quote unquote fast programming you know is, is kind of interesting. I don't have the answer for you on that. Uh, I I, will, uh, I think you know all of it in a, in a way is is quite cool, but. Uh, I'm really curious to know what's going to be sustainable, what's going to be durable. Uh, and that's where I think some of the interesting part about sensing comes in is finding ways to take the therapies we have and, and making sure we're staying in this, you know, what about therapeutic window for a long time? Yeah. So, I mean, I think, Mike, that's an important question because you're asking, how do we get better? And the, the first thing is, how do we know what we're doing? Because like I mentioned before, when SES, software simulation first started, it really was you know, just experimental. And and we were fortunate enough that the experimental outcomes with using lower frequencies and creating buzzing and tingling actually was pretty good. But the challenge with these treatments is that pretty good doesn't always justify the risk and cost. And unfortunately, when we say pretty good, we also mean not that durable. We, we worry about therapy falling off at two years or so in patients. And so for us to be able to understand why we're doing what we're doing, there's a couple of different things we need to look at. So the first is the biology. What is actually happening happening in the in the human? And unfortunately, we, we can't necessarily uh, see that quantitatively. So we use animal models to try and tell us what different frequencies and pulse widths. If you think about this as musical notes, what's different musical notes make a pleasing song 
to this particular pain pattern in this particular animal. And then we play it through the spinal cord and actually look at the changes in the genes that are expressed after the animal has been sacrificed. And what's really important about that is that it lets us know what we're actually doing, what's changing. Not just does the animal look like they're more comfortable because rats can't talk. You know, only rats in, in Washington, D.C. talk, and that's because most of them you know, are politicians. Um, I'm just kidding. This is a, it's a family podcast. The, the truth of the matter is, though, that humans are not, I mean, not just reluctant. They're just unlikely to allow you to dissect out parts of their spinal cord and let you assess what's happening and changing in them. So we have to rely on their word. And the problem with humans' word is it's influenced by a lot of different factors like how you slept last night, how your spouse or friends or colleagues treat you at work, your self-esteem. There's a psychological and social component that is also important to understand when you think about why we're doing what we're doing. And that's why when we do apply therapies like spinal cord stimulation, it's important to understand biologically why we're doing it. And then also think about the patient as a person and, and treat them as a, a whole individual. And that's the real, the real I think, crux of success is alone. None of these treatments alone work as well as they do in combination. And with spinal cord stimulation, one of the biggest problems is that the spinal cord is a moving target. It's kind of like the tea bag in my cup here. I, can call it, I went to Jefferson Medical College, great place, Philadelphia. But the tea bag, when I tip back, moves. It has less fluid on either side of it. As I tip it back and Take a step. And the same thing happens to your spinal cord. When you move around, when you, you know, I'll, I'll use Mike for an example. He's a, he's a triathlete. When he goes from running to swimming to biking, and he, his spinal cord is in a different position with respect to the fluid layers that surround it and his spine. And after the triathlon, when he's at the bar doing his dance moves, the, the positions are, are really unconventional. And Frank, so what I want you to understand is that we're not that smart that we could just pick out frequency, uh, a little pattern and play it and have it be the song that works for every part of your life. So sensing what that does is actually thinks a little bit more intelligently about what we're trying to achieve. It doesn't just think about, hey, I'm going to yell at the spinal cord. It looks and listens. It sends out a signal and then listens for almost that little echo, almost a tiny little whisper that might occur at a party. And it teases that out and it senses that as a measure of how much of your spinal cord is being activated by the signal. And when you sense, you can then respond to what you sense, assuming it's accurate. And so when we sense in spinal cord stimulation, it's to make a decision about what to do next. And that could be to increase the strength of the next signal, decrease the strength of the next signal, make no change. It, it really depends on what you're trying to do. When I say that, if you're trying to help somebody feel a buzz, you want to make sure that you're always sensing that neural activation. It's called an invoked compound action potential. If you're trying to make sure somebody never feels a buzz, you're trying to reduce your signal anytime you start to sense one of those ECAPs. But the problem within that, Mike, and, and I think this is what we're learning, is that the signal 
has to be evident through the noise. And the noise in this case is really substantial because you get noise from the person moving. You get noise from that person coughing or breathing or just their heart beating. God forbid that person should pass gas. There's artifact that will occur in their spinal cord stimulation signal as well. But more than those physiologic measures, there's also artifact from the stimulation itself. And if you think about that, it becomes really, really, really important to use sensing to optimize a therapy that you know works rather than to simply use it to optimize things that we're not sure how well they work. And that's where the biological understanding really comes into play. What are we doing when we apply the electricity to those cord structures? And then how do we make sure that that therapy is being applied consistently? Because just like anything else in life, consistency is probably the most important thing that we can apply to pain care and to spinal cord stimulation in general. So one of the reasons I thought this topic would be really fun to talk about is that uh, I think there's a kind of a correlation that a lot of people and you know potential patients and you know in the community can think about some of the some of the technology that's happening in automobiles where you have lane correct and you have uh, you know going as far as as like you know the the hands free like self driving cars where where you know you can just kind of read a book while you're while you're driving down the road. Uh, so where we're at right now in, in spinal cord stimulation and, and developing some of these sensing technologies, uh, how would you compare it? Where do you, where do you think we're at in that kind of continuum from you're drifting outside the lane, your car like rumbles and bother, you know, and kind of tries to warn you to like, to where it's actually doing all the driving itself. Do you think that, do you think our, our stimulation, uh, you know, some of the sensing capabilities are, are to the point where it can completely keep it in bounds? Do you think we're going to need some, this is going to need some continual adjusting and reprogramming and things that, you know, to keep it, keep it fine tuned. Well, you know, you can look at the work in Lancet neurology, closed loop stimulation in the evoke study significantly increased the ability to stay within range. And what, I think you're making a really good analogy to lane keeping for a car. The option for patients to feel within a certain range and to maintain people within that range, that is between feeling something and not feeling too much, that's really where we're at with closed-loop technology and sensing today. The next generation of sensing will take into account therapies that don't gate based on feeling something or feeling a paresthesia or feeling a buzzing. Uh, it's much more the challenge to use sensing to inform those therapies because you have to account for more artifact. You're actually sensing one thing, but you're responding to another. And you also have created a scenario where, in general, the patients are not intended, for the most part, to feel these therapies most of the time. Uh, most of them are what we call sub-perception or below the, the threshold of feeling. And so using sensing for those is something that we're still experimenting with and learning about. And I think that's going to be really important because that's, you know, taking some of the advances of the last decade and combining it with, with the sensing technology and also using those therapies where you're, you know, like you mentioned, therapies where you may not feel any kind of tingling or any kind of sensation and making sure you continue to not feel by not getting any zingers or, or anything where the, the therapy is getting outside of, outside of the bounds and, 
you know, overstimulating. Uh, and so, uh, with the uh, with you know similar therapy, do you, do you think that um, do you think we're going to get to the point where where this kind of this kind of therapy is going to be applied to to the DRG stimulation or dorsoganglion stimulation or 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 peripheral nerve stimulation? I mean, I mean peripheral nerve seems like it's probably a no because. Uh, you know, you only have, usually only have one lead on one nerve, but uh, but I'm, uh, and maybe DRG a little bit challenging too, where you have you know, the those ganglions at different levels. But do you think this is going to become a more spread, a more widespread uh, application, or do you think it's going to stay specifically to spinal cord stimulation? Well, I think we have to look. Okay, you ready? First, let's look across the board. What convincing evidence is there really out there for peripheral nerve stimulation? It's unfortunate, but it, it, so far, it, it's fairly minimal. Um, yes, it's mostly been experiential. That being said, a peripheral nerve is uh, quite a bit different in terms of its behavior when you modulate it. And as you mentioned, it, it, it is a lot more difficult to, you'd have to be really perfectly parallel to the nerve to be able to provide a ping pulse and then listen for it, right? Because you need a wire to do that. Well, I, I don't expect that to be much of an issue. But on the flip side, remember the peripheral nerve has no fluid layer surrounding it, right? And is typically going to have an anchored electrode, an anchored little wire, pretty reliably a similar distance away. And you're going to be looking at connective tissue and muscle typically as the, the medium that you're passing electricity through, which may be a little bit different or is definitely different than fluid. So that's one. Two, with dorsal regangling stimulation, again, you really have almost no fluid at that, at that space. And so I don't think that closed-loop stimulation is as important as it is because the structure is not dynamically moving like it is in the spine. So, I, And we also don't know how much of an optimization step that is for different therapies. And some of our contemporary new therapies do really well. We know if adding the sensing technology to that will make it better. Don't yeah. yeah, and then you know, there's other factors like sometimes peripheral stimulation. People don't use the therapy nearly as much as you know it's on for on for shorter durations, or it may not be as relevant to to having a something like spinal cord stimulation, where patients typically have it on you know most of the time uh, or or continuously. Uh, but I want to shift gears a bit and, and kind of talk about a bit about how we can improve our, our ability to see if who's a candidate for spinal cord stimulation. So and one of the things that we skipped over a bit at the beginning is that spinal cord simulators have a trial or a test period where you can try it out for you know, three to seven days uh, and, and see if the therapy is can potentially be a, a good option for you to move forward with. Uh, and all up until now, almost all of our ways we figured this out have been based on a pain score. So it's been, okay, how much, what percentage of relief did you get from, from that seven day period? Was it 50%? Was it 75%? Was it 80? Is it 45? I mean, did you really mean 50? You know, where, uh, and then it's been so focused on what, what percentage relief and then what happened to that pain score. Uh, and that's such a subjective way to measure it. And I, and in the, over the, we've gotten to the point over the last few years where we're starting to implement other ways to, to assess somebody's improvement and somebody's relief. And, and so I want to dovetail a bit into into some of the digital health and, and outcomes tracking capabilities that we have now, both during the trial phase and then, you know, long-term as we, as our, as we track our patients. So, uh, you know, that's kind of a, a guess what I'm thinking kind of thing there, but where do you want to go with this? What, what's the first thing you want to talk about with how, 
how we can implement other measures to, to track outcomes in simulation? Well, I mean, I think first we have to go and be realistic. I also think from the patient's perspective, if somebody asked me on a regular basis if my pain was a happy face or a sad face or a zero to a 10, and it would be difficult for me to, to really take that seriously. And I know it's difficult for some of our patients to take it seriously because it doesn't account for the impact on their, their life. You can't measure that just so linearly. Um, pain is one of the least data-driven disease processes in medicine. It's unfortunately also one of the ones that impacts more individuals than just about everything else within the top several uh, categories combined. We spend more money on this problem and it causes a lot more suffering than just about anything else. Now, it's hard to say that pain is well-controlled when we don't have a really good understanding of what the components of pain are. We talked about it a little bit before, but you know, measuring how much it hurts and where it hurts doesn't always give you an idea of the impact on somebody's life. So I like to think of my patients as high-impact and low-impact pain patients. And high-impact means that there's problems with anxiety and depression and your physical function, and pain interference and sleep disturbance and fatigue and social participation, that things are really out of whack. Those patients, and we, we assess that using questionnaires, one of them is something called Promise 29. Uh, but we, we use these questionnaires to understand, at the end of the day, the impact on somebody's life. Because if your pain was the same, but your life was in the normal range, you were able to do family things and social things, and take care of yourself, and pain didn't interfere with going to the grocery store or getting the mail from the mailbox or these just things that we all take for granted, well, I don't think you would have the same relationship to your pain than you do when it, it causes significant disability. Uh, what, what do you think about that? I think you're, you're definitely right. I, I mean, the, I, you know, like you mentioned earlier, I do a lot of triathlon training and, and I've had some minor problems with my back and stuff in the past. And, uh, and when you, when something is there and you, you may be able to know it's there, you can still kind of feel it there. You feel this twinge, you know, you're not at a, you know, you're, you're, you can't quite, sometimes you have to modify a little bit of how you sleep. The, if you can do all that and you can still function and you can still do, you can still work, you can still get a pretty good night's sleep. You can still play sports. You can do activities with your kids. You know, that, that condition may be there, but it's really well managed uh, and you can, you know, you can continue living your life and doing what you want to do. And that's going to, all the other things, it takes you from, you know, kind of a high impact scenario to a low impact scenario because your mood is better. Your, you know, all, all the other factors are better. Uh, and, but if that condition is poorly managed and then, then it's going to, it really, you know, really causes problems with everything else. If you, if you're, if you're sleeping poorly and, and then, then you're, you're fatigued, you're not, you're, you're, you're not walking as smooth. You're cranky. Yeah, I mean, I get, I'm cranky when I when I sleep poorly. Yeah, yeah. So I think it's one of those where where you know you we the, the pain is so much more complex than 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 the pain itself. It's all of the other factors involved, and, and I think that's it's really important for us as pain physicians to to look at those factors and to really understand how our therapies are are changing those factors and not just the pain score. Yeah, I, I think that's at the end of the day what people want. And when, you know, one thing you mentioned earlier is that 
is it 50% better or 70% better? I'm not sure where this percent pain relief came from. You know, we looked at this a couple of years ago and we asked people these Promise 29 questions and we combined a couple of them together. We combined pain interfering with daily activities with how much pain you had, pain score, and physical dysfunction. That, that's something called the pain impact score. We're not the ones who came up with it. The NIH did. But you know what? It turned out that that actually was closer to describing when people said how much percent pain relief they had from zero to 100% pain relief. Way more close to describing it, or correlated is the word we use in statistics, than uh, the pain scores themselves. And so I really start to think about those three things as being really important. How does pain interfere with your life, interfere with your function, and how much does it hurt when I start to talk to my patients? But that's really just the way I think about their pain. Everything else, mood, social life, et cetera, I mean, it's just at the end of the day, why we are here on this planet is we're social creatures. And for humans, isolation, depression, anxiety, fatigue, sleep disturbance, they all walk the same path with pain and can really change the pain experience for the better or for the worse. And how do you think that you know, incorporating this data and, and identifying some of these other factors, uh, how, how do you think that's changed your relationship with, with your patients? Can you give some examples of, of maybe ways that you've incorporated some of your, your, your screening and testing? Do you have any kind of really noteworthy patients that stick out in your mind? Well, I think what you're, what you're meant, what you're really saying is, uh, what's the conversation like in my clinic and the conversation in my clinic, it almost invariably surrounds, how are you doing? And it starts with actionable, objective measures. We look at their answers to the questions. We listen. And if somebody's depressed or anxious, we talk about it and treat it because that's part of pain care. And if someone has really poor physical function, we try and figure out why. At the end of the day, there's not usually, for most of our patients, there's not just one painful thing and you fix it and then they're good to go. Now, that's true in some settings, in some clinics, but for most chronic pain patients, it's not really the case. There's a comp component of management that needs to be done by them. So that means that they need to know what to do and what that's targeting. And you can't do that with zero to 10, you know, crayon smiley faces or zero to 10 scores that don't specify, hey, this person's not sleeping well. Hey, this person's really depressed or really anxious or all of these. So those patterns, those clusters of symptoms and expressions that we see, really important to pay attention to and, and hard to nuance out because most people are polite. I mean, you're, you're from the Midwest, Mike. People are polite, right? Most part. You know, I guess it depends on uh, if, I, if I just finished cutting them off and I'm driving my car or, or if, I, uh, if I let them cut in front of me. But I, I met most of your patients in your clinic. Yeah. I, I hear what you're saying. Yeah, the patients in the clinic are always nice to me. Whether they're nice to you know, uh, you know, the front desk staff and everybody, you know, you know, you always hear different things. But but by and large, uh, you know, Cincinnati's pretty happy place. I think that most of the patients are you know, they they, they uh, they're pretty pleasant. Um, but you know, how do you? One of the ways that uh, that that one of the pushbacks that sometimes I, I get when when thinking about these kind of things is is that more surveys and more things takes more time, which means that longer time at like, getting checked in at the office or more time, you know, spent for the doctor getting, coming in to see you. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how the, you know, some of the, the, the 
player health platform that you have, how, how these surveys and these things can be done prior to the visit and where that information can be sent, you know, right to the, right to the clinic ahead of time. So you can plan ahead and, and really streamline the, the, the patient's visit to the office. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I'm a, I'm a founder of, of a company called Calarian Health and, and it's really something that we came up with to stretch our own itch, which was to facilitate and make it easier for patients to communicate with their doctor in ways that we can both understand. And that uses these patient reported outcomes measures. First, it also gives you graphical outputs so that you can communicate with the patient and share with them the results compared to the U.S. general population. But it also does that in a way that kind of seamlessly takes that information and puts it into the electronic health record. So it works with your doctor's computer system to actually facilitate not just doing some paperwork, but also getting to the point of your visit. Because you start out with some actionable uh, measures. You start out by saying, hey, listen, wow, you're really depressed, or wow, your physical function is really terrible. We have a way of directing the conversation that avoids the, I like to call it the, the pleasant niceties of polite patients, where they say, oh, and they ask you about all the things about you, which don't get me wrong, I'm glad that my patients have an interest in me and my life, um, and, I, and I care about them. They are part of my extended you know, patient family, but on the flip side, it's their visit. It's their time to talk about them, to, to really have a to conversation about their problems. And so those pleasant niceties actually take away from that. So I use these outcomes really to start my conversation off by talking about their state. How are you right now? And, and that can be really helpful in both showing them that you care about them as a person and also keeping your visit on track so that you can hit the high points. You're depressed. Let's work on that. Your physical function problems, let's, do, let's work on physical therapy. Your physical exam, it looks like you've got some pinched nerve pain. You failed some physical therapy. I think we should do an injection or consider a X, Y, and Z procedure, right? Getting patients the right treatment, that's that's our job. But getting it to them at the right time, we need help understanding what the circumstances and context is for each person to make them the best version of themselves that, that we can help them be. And I think, you know, to the point of staying on time with the visits, uh, I think it also gives us a chance to quickly identify an issue that the patient may not be interested in talking about, may not be. And I think sometimes the the patients, they come in a little bit with a preconceived plan of this is what, this is what, you know, I mean, I need want to talk about. I want to talk about when my next refill is on my medication. I want to talk about how this is not working. It gives us a chance to, kind of, I think, get a better overview of what's going on with them by, you know, kind of that, you know, by not, by catching something that might've been omitted otherwise because of lack of time or because the, the focus was on something else. Um, so I think that's just, you know, kind of exciting on that, on that standpoint. And, and that in general, more information is always, always helps us frame the context of, of what, whether the therapies we're offering are working or whether we need to really change it up and try something new. Uh, you know, kind of tying the two topics, spinal cord stimulation and, and outcomes tracking together, um, can you just tell uh, tell the, you know, the, the the listener a bit about some of the ways that that some of the companies are are tracking data differently during a spinal cord simulator trial? Uh, so I'm sure you've been exposed to to you know some to some of this where where patients are um, with one company or another are getting uh, getting their asked to complete surveys during the course of their stimulator trial. And, and can you talk talk on that topic a little bit? I think in general the the, the communication with patients during uh, spinal cord simulator trials has been 
something that's uh, been critical to patient success. But that communication really has to be balanced and consistent across the universe. You know, just because somebody has a really nice rep that, that's uh, super kind and that they don't want to disappoint them and their personality is I don't want to disappoint this person, that they don't end up having a, a, a surgery they shouldn't have. I mean, we, we want to worry about getting patients the right treatment. We want to minimize some of the variables that at times can skew the results of a trial. And one of those you know, big variables is the human touch and human experience. And so when we think and I think about spinal cord stimulation in general, the, the idea that folks can use a digital tool that, that is consistent in capturing data, both during trials and, and longitudinally, is going to be very helpful for our field and for our patients to be able to, to give their unbiased and unencumbered opinions about their own care. I think that's critical. So in the last couple of minutes here, I just want, want to change the subject one more time uh, and just ask you a, a question. You can kind of take it however you want to take. Uh, what is kind of one therapy on the horizon, whether that's a you know pharmaceutical-based therapy or, or a, another you know technology-type therapy that, that you think is going to really uh, improve our ability to manage people's pain and, and to uh, going to kind of be a therapy disruptor in a way or industry disruptor in a way? Yeah, you know, that's a really good question. And in general, I would say that the there's a couple of things that will hopefully change soon. Uh, and one is that a medicine called buprenorphine will start to become more available and more accessible for pain control. Buprenorphine has traditionally been used for opioid use disorder for addiction. It's actually a really good drug for pain. The problem is on the market that there aren't that many forms that people can take, and there's kind of limitations in the dose that you can achieve. So, uh, you know, with with that being said, there are challenges with that drug. It's hard to get absorbed. It's hard to use. But some of the technologies that have been developed to improve the delivery of all medicines are starting to be applied to buprenorphine, uh, or bup as we call it for short, that I think is going to open up access and the right doses uh, for a lot more patients. We're also going to see similar things with psychedelics and also with ketamine as these therapies start to come together for both mental health as well as chronic pain and opioid use disorder and other substance use disorders uh, on the uh, mental health side. Yeah, I think that's uh, that, that is really exciting, and and I I, I like the uh, the fact that there's you know kind of a couple different ways the same same technology can be used to, to deliver the medications kind of in, in a novel form. Uh, and so you have, I think, that combination of, of a lot of experience out there in the marketplace or in the in the physician office with how, how some of these chemicals work and, and compounds work, um, but also, you know, bringing it in, in a new way that can be, you know, hopefully very, very effective. All righty. Well, I appreciate it. You know, we're coming up right up on 45 minutes. This was a, you know, really fascinating discussion. Uh, selfishly, this is a chance for me to, to pick the brain of, you know, one of the brightest guys in my field who's also a really great friend. And, and uh, some of the, some of the, the conversation is stuff that I've never even heard before. So, you know, I'm learning right along with everybody else that's listening. And, you know, the kind of funny thing, I'm, I designed these podcasts to be, you know, patient patient focused where, you know, patients are coming to learn and then I'm sitting right here learning with them. So I don't know, I guess I, I got to go back to school a little bit more, um, but uh, 
Dr. Fishman, thank you very much for your time. Uh, any parting words, sir? No, listen, I think if I, uh, if I had a billboard for pain patients that sat on the side of the highway and gave a message to pain patients, the message would be, don't go it alone. Come and talk to a pain doctor. This is something that we think about a lot. And it's also something that we believe is not just, you know, like a broken bone and not just, hey, this, you know, this discourse. We know that it affects your body and your mind and your family and your friends and your work and that you're real people. And I think that oftentimes in medicine is, is, is forgotten, but it really is central to pain here. And so I just wanted that message to be out to people that you know, we care about you, all of you. Yeah, very, very well said. I, I echo that 100%. All right, this is uh, Dr. Michael Danko and, and Dr. Michael Fishman uh, signing off. And uh, at the conclusion, if you want to kind of just to your own self, you know, complete that that poll about who's really Chevy Chase and who's Dan Aykroyd, uh, I really don't know how I'm going to get that information back from you. So just kind of think about it for a little bit and, you know, just put it in the comments. Put in the comments. Yeah, they're perfect. Perfect. All righty. Take care, Dr. Fishman. Thank you. Bye-bye. Good night, everyone. Thanks for listening to Premier Pain Talk, where we understand your pain and share solutions that can improve your quality of life. This episode is brought to you by Premier Pain Treatment Institute, which has convenient Cincinnati area locations in Loveland, Mount Orb, and Hillsboro. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so you get updates on all new episodes. Feedback is sincerely appreciated. 